Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Chad Randall at Life Story Church. We are a grassroots church located in the heart of the Bellevue community in Nashville, Tennessee. Our services are streamed live on Facebook and YouTube every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. and Wednesday, 7 p.m. Central Time. We would love for you to join us. Now here's Pastor Chad Randall. We've been, uh, we've been in this uh, series for the last couple Wednesdays. This is our third installment of That's Not in the Bible, right? That's not in, there's a number of different things that are, are, that are uh, uh, in the subconscious of Christianity that just frankly are teachings that we have in our minds that are not supported by scripture. Tonight, uh, tonight's topic is an interesting one. Uh, tonight's subtitle is Demonic Gospels. Last week we talked about uh, the, the warnings that we were given uh, by Paul uh, to, to uh, avoid those who are teaching another Jesus and uh, another spirit, avoid uh, discerning what another spirit other than the Holy Spirit would be, but also discerning what another whole another gospel would be. And there certainly are a number of them. And we've, we've had a good conversation so far in regards to uh, especially the first first week and last week combined in regards to uh, what really another gospel is. What is in con- last week we talked about the contrast between who Jesus is, how we can know what uh, this other Jesus Paul's talking about by first knowing who he is. So when we hear reports of of this other Jesus, the other characteristics that Jesus may have, we can spot them as fraudulent, right? So. Uh, on the Facebook promo for tonight that we put out earlier today, I asked a question. I said, if, if it's not in the Bible, if it's not in the Bible, why has it been taught in church? That's a good question, isn't it? So we're going to dig deep tonight. So I hope you've got your coffee. I've got my wall drug coffee cup here. And I hope you've got your Bible because we're going to be doing a little bit of digging tonight, and a notepad would probably be great as well. You know, a trick that I learned a while back when, uh, when diving deep and, uh, thank you, Andrew, when diving deep and, uh, is that better? How's that? All right. When diving deep into studies that are real content heavy, uh, a lot of times I'll use my uh, iPhone and I'll either take a picture of the screen so I can circle back around and write it down, or I'll do a screenshot depending on what device you're, uh, you're watching on tonight. So there's a couple tips for you, okay? Uh, have you guys said hi, by the way, to each other? Have you said greeted everybody? I hope you have. If you haven't, please do so. Uh, we, we don't ever want to miss our time of meet and greet here in the virtual realm either, okay? So, uh, if it's not in the Bible, why has it been taught in church? A great question. The answer to that question, though, it goes back, and I mean way back. It goes way back. Would you actually believe me if I were to tell you that it actually starts in the book of Genesis? Of course you would, right? Because you trust me. Let's read, first of all, Genesis chapter 3, verse 4 through 5 together. Can we? Can we see that graphic? Then the serpent said to the woman, you're all familiar with this story already, aren't you? Then the serpent said to the woman, will, you will not, you will not surely die, verse 5, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God 
knowing good and evil. Do you hear this lie right out of the gate? Interesting thing, I've read this uh, uh, scripture a million times and it never occurred to me until last year to take a look at this uh, passage in the Greek. That word eyes right there, for God knows that in that day you eat of it, your eyes will be open. Well, I looked at it, excuse me, not the Greek, that's the Hebrew here. When you look at it in the Hebrew, can we go back to that graphic? Here's what it says. It says, ayin, I, not eyes. So it, the scripture in their English says eyes, but truly it's ayin, I, not eyes, of mental and spiritual faculties. It has nothing to do with vision, is what Satan is trying to tell Eve here. That is the beginning of the lie that still persists to this day. We see here the spirit of deception. We see that it has been Satan's strategy since the beginning to play on, uh, on our, the, the downfall of mankind, to play on our ego, as it were. From the beginning, church, the arrogance of man has been his downfall. The stroking of the ego, the stroking of the ego, the promise that you can have something that no one else can have. That's right. You can be special. You can be enlightened, illuminated even, elevated above you can be. You, you know what? You can know something that no one else knows. You can be better than everyone else. Mm, that lie that lie persists even to this day. It's a spirit that is so alive and well today, church, that it continues to be celebrated in our culture and in our pop culture. As a matter of fact, I've got a, a series of photographs for you to prove that point. Can I see that first one? This, this first picture, this is known as the eye of Ra. So that, that eye that Satan was talking about in the Garden of Eden, it carried over through the region. This idea that there's an eye of knowledge of mental and spiritual faculties, right? So this is the eye of, do we see that anywhere in our culture and pop culture today? Anybody? I'll wait for answers. Maybe. I've got a few, uh, a few uh, examples for you. Can I see that first one? How about this one? America Online. That looks familiar, doesn't it? Let's see the next one. Can we see the next one? CBS News. Interesting. Let's keep going. We've all spent money before and seen that before, haven't we? Interesting. Masonic origins there. Uh, a lot to go into there that I won't. Let's keep going. We've seen these tattoos on people and in our movies and in pop culture. Keep going. Our artists and pop stars in their photo shoots drawing this symbol on themselves for whatever reason. I was holding it in front of their forehead. Look at, I mean, just do a Google search on stars holding their hand in front of their forehead with the eye drawn on it and your, your Google search will fill up, okay? What else do we have? Anything else? Even Taco Bell is getting into the mix, right? Of course, they, they frame it as a spoof, the uh, uh, Belluminati. Right, the eye, the illuminated ones. They, it's so ingrained into our pop culture that they're even spoofing it now. Church, and one more. There's another one that uh, uh, I, Andrew showed me when we were just walking in today. He didn't even know what we're going to be uh, that we're going to be talking about this specifically tonight. And there it is, right now at Target. You can go down to Target in Pizza We Trust and pick up your Illuminati pizza shirt. 
and there's more to that. Uh, there's more to that uh, photograph as well that we won't get into in this moment. But but the spirit is all over that. It's that same spirit of deception that is alive. It was alive in the garden. Celebrated this idea of illumination of secret knowledge, right? It's alive today as it was then. See, church, it's important to understand. Oh, I'm going to this first, and I'm going to this now, because it's important to understand that this is the spirit, okay, that is behind every false teaching that's out there. Come on now, we've talked about other, other uh, uh, Jesuses, other Gospels, other spirits coming to you and deceiving you over the last couple of weeks. This church is the spirit that is behind every false teaching out there. I'm telling you, whether it's uh, the legalists that are parading their, self-righteous, their self-righteousness through their works around, or the lawless in their arrogance rejecting correction. It is the same spirit that is, wor- is at work that was in the garden that is here today, and it is behind every false teaching out there. You've got to get that as a foundation before we can truly go any deeper into this conversation. The most widely known purveyors of this spirit in regards to its assault on the church, though, they were known as the Gnostics. And we're going to spend a good bit of time talking about them tonight because, oh, church, uh, it is them that we have to thank for a lot of bad teaching and a lot of bad thinking that is alive and well in the church today. Can I see our next graphic? It was in 55 AD. I want you to think of the timing here. 55 AD. Think Jesus Christ Christ was crucified in 32 AD. Uh, uh, Paul and Peter were were, uh, thusly put to death in the Colosseum in Rome in around 62 AD. Uh, The temple was destroyed in 70 AD. So this is a heresy and a twisting of the gospel and the twisting of scripture that began right out of the gate. I mean, as soon as Jesus ascended into heaven and the disciples started spreading the gospel, as soon as the the truth of the gospel was being spread, it began to uh, be under attack. It came under attack by false teachers. So the twisting of scripture began in 55 AD. It's referenced actually by 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1 through 3. We actually covered that in our, the first week, so we're not going to go back to Peter a lot tonight. But what did they do? They disparaged existing writings, uh, letters of the apostles to one another and to churches, and Paul's and, and Peter's letters and John's letters. They disparaged the existing writings. They mixed Greek philosophies with mysticism, <clears throat> Eastern speculation, with Jewish legalism, which is interesting. We'll get to that in a moment. And they mixed all of that into this idea of, of with a revelation from God. So they were had the hard wire and with God, and they were getting illuminated and getting revelations from God, and then and then spinning this mystic speculation, Jewish legalism. Philosophical, uh, uh, Greek philosophy stuff. Uh, they believed all material was evil. All matter was evil. They believed that Jesus was not God in flesh. 
that he was a phantom. In other words, there were no footsteps in the sand. Uh, it, was, it was what we would call a new age uh, kind of idea and thinking mixed with Greece, Greek uh, philosophies and an appearance of Christianity as well. And that's very important, church, that we understand that even from the beginning, there were those who were parading themselves around as Christians and hijacking uh, Christian uh, Christian language, and even uh, the names of apostles and ascribing different uh, theologies to those apostles that are unbiblical, or, or to Jesus himself even. Uh, you know, it was already gaining momentum before John died, as we can tell by the date of 55 AD. First John is essentially a Gnostic rebuttal. If you try to read First John and you don't understand uh, how we wear Christ's righteousness, and it's his righteousness, not our own, that saves us. If you try to read 1 John without an, truly a, a repentive mind that understands what salvation truly is, if you try to read 1 John without understanding truly that it is Christ's righteousness that makes us holy, uh, and you try to read 1 John without understanding uh, that he was specifically, he was specifically, uh, fighting against and bringing a rebuttal against these Gnostic heresies. Uh, if, you don't under, if you don't have that context, 1 John can be hard to understand. Uh, Colossians is also a Gnostic rebuttal. The word Gnostic itself means secret knowledge. In other words, it implies that they know and you don't. You know, you'll find when it comes to people who are teaching Gnostic ideas blended into their uh, a, a Gnostic light or Gnostic heavy Christianity, you'll find that arrogance is often uh, a characteristic that accompanies the false teacher. Uh, it means I'm in the know, you're not. And you know what, if you want to be in the know, you need me, all right? Let's get that straight. Greek, the Greek word is gnosis, means simply knowledge, which by, by the way, agnostic means without knowledge. You know, there's a lot of people today that just say, oh, you know, they claim to be agnostic and they, you know, in the world today that it's not cool to be a Christian, to say you're agnostic, means like, okay, well, he doesn't pretend to have all the answers. He's just, does, he just, you know, it's, it's cooler to say that, yeah, maybe I, I do believe in a higher power. I just don't know that it's Jesus, you know? That's the ag agnostic position. But basically, if you say you're an, if you say that you're agnostic, I love the Greek equivalent or Latin equivalent of that is ignoramus. So you're walking around telling people that you're ignorant. That's beautiful. Gnostics were known also for mutilating the scripture. And this is, this is huge. This is a big one here. So they've got all of these different ideas. They're borrowing uh, names and, uh, and they're borrowing elements of Christianity. They're almost appearing to be Christian. They're talking about Jesus and they're ascribing to Jesus attributes and characteristics that are not him, that are unscriptural. Okay? And to make it happen, they're mutilating the scripture to make things fit. Well, let me show you this. And tw they twist the scriptures to make their points work. They would even delete portions of the scripture. 
to make their theology and their ideas work. Okay? Uh, early church father Arrhenius, he said this, speaking of the Gnostics, this is uh, the famous quote we need to have. Can we see that? He said, wherefore, they and their followers have betaken themselves to mutilating the scriptures, which they themselves have also shortened. So they've also shortened, they have shortened their, uh, the scriptures, they have edited them, edited them. they've made them fit uh, better to their liking. I'm going to switch this over, guys, so you can hear me better. Give me just a second. How's that? Is that better, Andrew? Yeah? Thumbs up? All right. Great. So can I see this map? I've got a map for you guys. You know that I always love to teach visually. That's why I love this setting, because we can do all the pictures. Alexandria, Egypt was their headquarters. So imagine this, and imagine teachings in the Gnostic universities happening there. Scriptures being mutilated, uh, gospels being changed, letters uh, that Paul is writing, uh, straight, uh, straight up forgeries being written of Paul and being sent out to churches like Thessalonica. Uh, all over, it's all happening during the, the first church age is this happening, okay? Gnostic writings and teachings were easily identified, okay? They were easily identified by the disciples and the early church fathers. They were uh, because they all knew Jesus personally. They all taught from an experience of seeing him, touching him, right? Uh, they knew the word. They knew the experiences firsthand that they'd had with him. So when they see a, a counterfeit, it was easy to spot. You know, I mean, these were the first guys. These were their own, their own words that they were putting forth, right? Well, as led by the Holy Spirit. So they're easy, they were easy to spot by the disciples and the early church fathers. But today, unfortunately, their documents, for some reason, and I think we all know what it, what it is, their documents, these Gnostic documents, carry historical integrity, for some reason, uh, in the scientific community. Uh, why is that relevant? Well, their documents to this day contribute to the authority crisis that we're witnessing in this generation. The authority in the sense of, of 91% per, uh, of Christians not believing in absolute truth. That's frightening. And if you don't believe in absolute truth, how can you believe that the Word of God is absolute truth? The statistics are frightening as far as the authority crisis that we're having in regards to how even people who claim to be Christians and in the church uh, trust the Word of God. Uh, let me ask you this. Have you ever seen the History Channel uh, around uh, Easter, Resurrection Sunday, around Christmas time? Uh, especially 10 years ago or so, it was like clockwork. Every uh, Easter, every Christmas, we would get uh, commercials on the History Channel saying, the forbidden books of the Bible. You guys remember that? These books were uh, left out for political reasons or whatever. They're left out from the Bible, and they, can, they contain secret knowledge that maybe Jesus wasn't who you think he was, or maybe the apostles weren't who you really think they were, yada, yada, yada. Well, they call them the lost books of the Bible. They're not lost. They were left out because they were heretical. They were false. They were forgeries. I mean, let's be honest with you, with ourselves. Has anybody ever watched those shows and had the thought, well, wait a minute. What is this now? They left some books out of the Bible. Why would they do that? I knew I didn't trust Rome, right? Or, uh, or why would they do that? These, 
These are Gnostic books that they're trying to sell you as forbidden books of the Bible or lost books of the Bible. They're Gnostic texts and they're passing them off as credible and they're not credible. Why? Because the early church who, who by and large wrote the Bible and wrote the text could spot the fake easily and called it out as such. As I said, John confronting heresies uh, uh, in 1 John. Uh, Paul confronting Gnostic heresies in Colossians, right? And we always, we always uh, have a tendency to forget that, you know, the apostles, they had their own disciples. Yeah, and we have their works uh, in the Antinicene collection, uh, volumes and volumes and, and volumes of uh, people like Polycarp, who lived with John for 20 years. Read his text. If you ever read any of John's uh, uh, writings in the Word of God and you're not sure what, what John really meant by this or what his, where his theology was on something, go read Polycarp, because Polycarp was a student that lived in his house for 20 years. And you'll find that Polycarp's uh, teachings on those same things are right in line with what the Holy Spirit is telling you about John's intentions and what he meant, all right? So Gnostic documents were easily spotted by people like Polycarp, easily spotted by Arrhenius who called them out. We read that quote just a moment ago, right? But the heresies, the heresies, why are they, why are they so dangerous? The heresies promise people per, spiritual perfection. They promised them spiritual perfection. If they, if they entered into the esoteric teachings and the ceremonies prescribed, you could achieve spiritual perfection. You know, this depth and this full knowledge, it could only be in, enjoyed by those who are in the know. And guess, guess who's willing to help you come into the know, right? The teacher. They were all based on man-made traditions and philosophies. They were not, they were not uh, based on divine truth. Uh, let's go to the word for our first uh, uh, reference here. Colossians, Paul, in addressing the issues of the Gnostics, writes to the Colossian church in Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. He says, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. Church, they came to the false conclusion that matter was evil. We covered that, didn't we? That, the, that a powerful spirit world used material things to attack mankind. That's what they believed. To the contrary, though, Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, Paul says this. He said, for in him were all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Thus, they're not evil, they're not wicked, they're created by him, through him, and for him. Matter is evil, come on. They held to a form of astrology even, believing that angelic beings associated with heavenly bodies influenced affairs on earth. And added to these Eastern speculations was also a form of Jewish legalism. Good and evil to them, good and evil uh, were derived from rules and regulations. 
rules and regulations. Colossians chapter 2, verse 20 through 23 reads, Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces, there they are again, of this world, why as though you still belonged to the world do you submit to its rules? Remember, remember, good and evil derived from rules and regulations, a form of Jewish legalism twisted into this mysticism, right? <laughs> Directly, he's, he's uh, addressing this issue. Do not handle, verse 21 says, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such re regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom, an appearance of wisdom. Get that now, church. It has an appearance of wisdom, right? So you want to bite. With their self-imposed worship, their false humility, false humility, mm, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Wow. Isn't that true? Isn't it true? Uh, you see it in the most legalist churches, the people, the more and more repressed that they get, the greater indulgences that eventually uh, pour out the cracks and the seams until the dam breaks. Every time, every time. Uh, they, they, I want to read that again. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom. They do. With their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. They taught, they even taught that uh, the, the idea that the rite of circumcision, okay, was helpful in spiritual development. Now, if you know anything about the 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 covenant of the circumcision with Abraham, you know it has nothing to do with that. Spiritual development. Colossians uh, chapter 2 verse 11 uh, deals with that. Uh, and they also taught that the Old Testament, by the way, the Old Testament dietary laws were also helpful in attaining spiritual perfection. So this is in the, this is in the New Testament age. This is in the first church age, the, the church in uh, uh, Coloss, right? So, here we see this legalism that's still prevalent today, alive and well, right there. You know, if you'll just, if you could just whip yourself into shape, that's the key to your spiritual, uh, your key to your spiritual maturity and growth is your diet. What? Second Colossians, uh, Colossians chapter two, verse thirteen through eighteen reads, "And you, being dead in your trespasses." When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. Verse 14. Having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Somebody in your Bible right now, 
Underline that, please. Underline that, please. Having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Your diet is not going to help, church. Your diet is not going to help your unholiness, your, the debt that you owe in a broken covenant with the Father. How you eat isn't going to help. Worshiping on Saturday isn't going to help. There's one sacrifice for you, and it's right here. It stood against us, and it condemned us, and he, Jesus, has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Verse 15. And having disarmed the powers and the authorities, he made a public spectacle of them. I love it. Publicly, he made a spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Somebody on that thread say amen, please. Verse 16. Therefore, hear me now, guys. Come on now. Do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or what you drink. Oh, jeez. There's so much of this in, the, in the, the legalistic church today. Or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. Jesus is our Sabbath rest now, church. All of the law he fulfilled. He said, I did not come to do away with the law. I came to fulfill the law. Amen. And so he has. So you're, you're, if, you have the per, if you want to go kosher for your health, go kosher, right? It's not going to add to your salvation. Not remotely. Uh, let's keep reading. Verse 17. These things were only a shadow of things to come. These are a shadow of the things to come that were, that were to come. The reality, however is found in Christ. Verse 18, Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they have seen. They are puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. Church, this is this will preach, won't it? Uh, Paul's letter to the Colossian church is a letter that liberated them. It's a, it's a letter that liberated them in a way that today we as the church still need liberating. As we study many of Paul's letters, we discover that we should no longer be bound to old covenant law, don't we? Galatians covers that well. Romans covers that well. They're both of them very well. Though most of us uh, have at one time or another struggled with legalistic thinking and believing, I'm, it's so prevalent it's hard not to get it in the back of our heads. You know, even though most of us, we've struggled at one time or another with legalistic thinkings, we don't actually struggle with the law of Moses, do we? No, we don't struggle with law of Moses kind of stuff like the Corinthian church did, the first church did, the, the, the church that Paul's writing to in Hebrews, right? Now, most of us struggle today, unfortunately, with a form of legalism that was taught to us by the church. I want you to hear that. Taught to us by the church, but not the Bible. That's the difference. That's the problem here. It's not, so much of these things are not in the Bible. As you're reading, as I read through those passages in Colossians, 
so many of those things apply to us that people, restrictions that they put on themselves, that if they can pull it off, makes them feel holy. And if they fail at it, they feel like they're being a bad Christian, right? They're not even, they're not even biblical requirements. Paul is telling us, Jesus paid it all for you. He nailed it to the cross. Church, we are dealing with legalism today that's in the back of our minds that has been taught to us by the church, but it's not in the Bible. Somebody say it with me. That's not in the Bible. To be sure, a great deal, a great deal of legalism is taught by, by removing scripture from context and inferring new meaning upon a verse that was not meant to specifically address what the false teacher is suggesting it does. But this kind of mutilation of scripture, though, is often done in defense of an idea or theology that has a, mar a much darker and less accidental origin. What we know about the Gnostics, it's, that, it's just that spirit. You see, that, that same spirit that deceived Eve in the garden, that antichrist spirit, that spirit of deception, preying on our, va our vanity, the vanity of humanity, right? Preying on our, on our frailties and our failings, tries to bring us into a place of legalism and rob us of our Christian liberty by twisting scripture, removing it from its context, all the while that false teacher is doing that to prove his point or his teaching, and he may be oblivious to it, but that spirit knows exactly what it's doing. It's a much less accidental origin. What we know about the Gnostics came mainly from the church fathers, uh, Arrhenius, and Hippolytus, until, until that is, the discovery of the Gnostic Library. Many Christians might not even know what that is, right? But we need to. Nag Hammadi uh, in Egypt, the Gnostic Library was discovered in Nag Hammadi, Egypt in 1945. Can I see a picture of that collection? We have that next graphic. Here it is for you. Sacred Gnostic texts, they say. Give me a break. You know, I have uh, often uh, gone to uh, Ken Johnson. He's a theologian. I've often gone to his works uh, uh, to gain insight. Just a blessing to the kingdom of God he is. Uh, you know, the context of the library, Nag Hammadi, they confirm for us what the church fathers stated had been the current Gnostic belief system. And uh, Ken Johnson wrote a book called uh, Demonic Gospels. Do we have a picture of this book in the machine? Not Demonic Gospels, and that's the inspiration for tonight's um, sermon title. I encourage you guys to buy this book on Amazon or on Kindle. You can get it there or buy it in paperback and have it mailed to you. I want to share with you guys some of... Uh, the insight that we have here. I'm going to open it up to page 31. This is some far out stuff that these guys believed. And uh, you can tell that the father of lies is truly the author of their doctrines and their belief system. I'm just going to read you a little bit of what they believe. And it's honestly 
we could really spend time getting into this, but I don't have time for that tonight. Let me share some of the Gnostic beliefs that Ken gives us here from his book. Uh, he said, uh, the goddess Sophia created the Demiurge, which was a creator angel, and that's who the god of the Old Testament was. He was a tyrant, and being unaware of the eons, 30 other gods, thought that he was the only god. He created man, but Sophia gave man a spirit. Hmm. Some may be saved if they do enough good works. So there's, I mean, works is all in this doctrine. Uh, but some are pre predestined to go to hell. Have we heard that uh, theology in the Christian church uh, here and there? I, I have. Gnostics, though, have spirits that are emanations from Sophia. They're different, right? This makes them predestined to be saved. Church, predestination? This is Cal roots of Calvinism. We've studied this before. I haven't done it in a couple of years. Maybe we, need to do, maybe we need to do it. The roots of Calvinism are Gnostic, church. They just are. Uh, quite a statement to not be doing a study on it, but we'll get there. All right. Uh, this makes them predestined to be saved. It is impossible for them to lose their salvation. Impossible. It does not matter if their behavior is good or evil. As a matter of fact, they're saved either way. The most perfect of them addict themselves to evil deeds and are in the habit of defiling the women they convert. Eventually, all matter will be destroyed since matter is evil and not capable of salvation. Wow. Really? Holy cow. And this is... And this is foundation for their teaching that still infects the church today. Some of their, uh, these are some of the names of the Gnostic teachers. Can we see those? I'm going to, as we go through this list, I'm going to sh uh, share some of their teachings, what they believed with you as we move forward. Simon Magus, uh, we find him in Acts chapter 8. Uh, uh, Menander, Carpocrates, Saturninus, Saturninus, like that. Marcus, Marcion, uh, Titian, am I doing alright with the enunciations, guys? Naseni, Alcasates, Perate, uh, Serinthus, Serinthus, Basildes. Okay, these are, just the, the, these are their most popular teachers of the Gnostic uh, uh, faith, I guess, if it were. Uh, let me know, I'm going to go through just some of what these guys taught, and I want you to let me know if you pick up any ideas that have been prevalent in the church during your lifetime, okay? Are you with me? Let's do this. Uh, Saturninus, he taught that sex is sinful. Because all matter is sinful, and well, after all, we're matter. So doing that, that is actually sinful, even among married couples. Now let me ask you, how many married couples still feel so, to some degree, uh, because of how perhaps the church that they were brought up in, uh, dirty or, or, or guilty being physical with their husband or wife even? You know, even the subject of this is taboo in many churches to this day, and why should it be? It's part of... It's part of how God created us to be a type and shadow for the church and build families. But it's taboo in many churches to this day. Some of you might even be blushing right now that I even said that word a minute ago. This idea, as a matter of fact, though, was picked up by the Catholics big time. Uh, professor, just let me read you something here. Professor John Noonan, and uh, uh, 
the paper he wrote, he suggests that if one were to ask where the Christian fathers derived their notions on marital physical relations, notions which have, get this, no express biblical basis, the answer must be chiefly from the Stoics. Does anybody know who the Stoics are? I'll wait. That's okay. I didn't necessarily. It's been a long time since I'd studied uh, uh, um, Greek thinking, right? The Stoicism is a school of Hellenistic philosophy founded by Zeno of Citium in Athens in the early 3rd century BC. Okay, so hold up a second. Time out. So, Christian 4th century, 3rd century Christian fathers got their ideas and notions on marital physical relations from the Hellenistic uh, Stoicism? Well, according to Professor John Noonan, he goes on to say he uses the text from uh, those 3rd century church fathers, from uh, 4th century church fathers, from uh, Musanus, Rufus, Seneca, the Younger, Ocelius, Lucanus, and tracing works of, more famously, Clement of Alexandria, even, or Origen, more famously, and even to Jerome, to the works of these early thinkers, Stoicism was bleeding into their thinking on the issue of physical relations within the confines of marriage. Problem with this is, what did they think? What did Stoicism say in regards to the physical uh, nature of a marriage relationship? Well, uh, they taught this. They taught this, particularly as pertaining to permissible use of the sexual act, which in the Stoic model must be, are you ready? Subdued, dispassionate, and justified by its procreative intent. So in other words, if it's going to happen... Uh, it only should happen, it, it should be only for pre- procreative uh, intent, and in doing so, it should be dispassionate and subdued. You got that? And that's in the church, fathers teaching that, Stoic theology, in the fourth century. Does anybody want to say this one with me? That's not in the Bible. That's not in the Bible. That's not how things are explained to us to be in the Bible between a husband and a wife who love each other and want to share the love of Christ and be an example of that to their children. Dispassionate, are you kidding me? Subdued. Marcus, let's, can I see that list again? Some of you probably want me to stay on that one. We could talk about that one for a while. Marcus, down the list a little bit, he taught that the Holy Spirit put a drop of uh, Sophia's blood into the communion wine, imparting special understanding into mysteries and prophecy. This is teaching in the church, agnostic teaching in the church. Grace was to be imparted during communion if, if he said a certain uh, incantation. So imagine they're doing something, they're taking communion together, but he's not, he's agnostic. He's not a, a Christian, but he's taking Christian elements. It's making it to appear Christian. Do you see what's happening here? And in that appearance of Christianity, they're putting, the, he's saying an incantation over 
Does this sound familiar at all? An incantation over the wine, and this is the, where the beginning of uh, Catholic transubstantiation comes from. And what that is is Catholics, when they take communion, they believe that when the prayer is said and the incantation is said and everything else, then they take the communion, and when you swallow it, it goes into your stomach, and the wafer or the bread actually becomes the flesh of Christ. You heard that right. This is where we find the roots of that idea that's alive in the Catholic Church today. Uh, anyway, Marcus also taught <laughs> that uh, there was a second baptism of redemption that came by the laying on of hands. And of course, this one we see in the United Pentecostal Church. They'll say, well, yeah, you get saved, you get saved, but you don't really have the Holy Spirit until you know your hands are laid on you and then you'll speak in tongues and that's the evidence that the Holy Spirit is in you which is counterintuitive considering uh, Ephesians chapter 1 tells us that when you believe when you repent and your mind shifts and you believe that Jesus was the Messiah that he died on the cross and he rose from the grave when you believe that you put faith in that gospel the moment you do your heart is sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit that guarantees your inheritance because salvation is a gift from God meant to be received not earned and worked for. Amen? Somebody say it. Amen. So, the coming of the Holy Spirit comes on us. Now, there are times, church, where the Holy Spirit will come to us and give us strength. He will come to us and give us a word of knowledge. He'll come, you know, as, as explained by Paul through his letters and the working of the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit is with you from the beginning. You don't need, it's not, it's not a second, well, that's the roots of that teaching is right here. Marcion, can I see that list? Marcion on that list, he said, uh, oh, excuse me, yes, he also, that was Marcus, Marcion said uh, he blended astrology with Christian theology, okay, astrology and Christian theology. Uh, he removed references to Christ as the creator as well in his gospel, and this is one thing in particular that we know that Paul was combating against in the first chapter of Colossians, when what in First Colossians chapter one verse sixteen, I won't make the uh, the prompter go to it. I'll just read it to you myself. Uh, Paul said, "For in him all things were created." Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and what? For him. So Paul's directly uh, shutting down this false teaching uh, by Marcion. Uh, Titian, can we see that list? Titian, he believed that drinking wine was a sin. He taught that drinking wine was a sin. Church, hear me now, please. Now, this is still prevalent in the church today, uh, this, this idea and thought. Drinking wine is not a sin. It's, it's not in the Bible. Now, it may not be good for you. It is dangerous. People can abuse it. it I would never encourage somebody uh, to go do it, certainly not from this uh, uh, pulpit. But it, I'm just telling you, especially if it's in your alcoholisms in your family, whatnot, but drinking wine is a sin, that's not in the Bible. This is not even close to being in the Bible, okay? Uh, the Bible says that we are not to be drunk. Don't be drunk. Your eyes run bloodshot as the drunker. Uh, kings don't uh, uh, take strong drink. And in those passages, in those passages, uh, in those passages the, the language they're used suggests hard to us what would be hard liquor. Uh, kings don't do that because you're making decisions to go to war or not go to war. You don't need to be drunk when you're doing that, right? That's good advice, right? And that is 
I, I second that. Don't be drunk. Don't be drunk. The Bible's clear about that. But as far as saying that drinking wine, period, is a sin, that's not in the Bible. That's what Tishan taught. Jewish culture, as a matter of fact, guys, Jewish culture and wine, they're inseparable. There's just no way around it. They're inseparable. The, on the Passover Seder, you're required to drink the whole glass, four uh, full glasses of wine, as a part of the Seder. Yet, so that's what God requires of his people, but drinking wine is a sin? Of course not. That's counterintuitive. It makes no sense whatsoever. Uh, well, Titian also taught that taking medicine was a sin. Instead, we should rely on God alone to heal. Does this sound familiar? Does it sound like the Amish communities at all? How many sad stories have you heard coming out of the, uh, those Amish communities I heard, would hear growing up? Of course, I'm from the Midwest, and there are Hutterite colonies and Amish communities all around. But people not wanting to take their sons and daughters to the doctor because they believed that it was evil, and they believed that you know, they needed to believe and have faith for healing because otherwise it would be a sin and you know, such, so much suffering that could have been avoided over the years. Well, that's obviously alive in those communities. Uh, Naseni taught that Adam was transsexual. I think this is one that's very relevant for today. Uh, with the living in the day and age of, uh, of uh, uh, the ba great bathroom debates and uh, identity politics and all that stuff that's going on, uh, Naseni, it's nothing new under the sun, right? There's nothing new. He taught that Adam of all people, was transsexual, having both sexual organs, and that they then they they also worshipped the certain the serpent in doing this, and they practiced orgies even. Uh, Serinthus, uh, continuing down our list, Serinthus, the divine Christ joined taught that the divine Christ joined the man Jesus at baptism. In other words, Jesus was a man, just a man, and he wasn't divine until he got baptized, and then. Then the Christ left him right before he died. The background, by the way, of 1 John, I mentioned earlier, you've got to understand the background to really understand 1 John. Uh, he was directly dealing with these Serenthus uh, disciples. Uh, you know, the problem with this is that in that belief, right, they, since matter, since matter uh, and not breaking the not breaking of God's law was considered, uh, considered evil. Uh, breaking his law was of no, no moral consequence. So all matter is evil. All matter is evil. Uh, so if you break the law, it doesn't matter. It's of no consequences. In other words, it threw, other words, it threw off all moral constraint. And that was the background that John was coming to. That teaching was trying to bleed its way into the church that John was writing to. Uh, and lastly, we'll do one more. Basildes. Uh, Basildes taught that man could live a sinless life. Now, just I don't know about you guys. I mean, when I started going through these, I'd see, see as we study through these Gnostic teachers, are any of these ideas in the subconscious of the church still? Man, I think they are. I think they are. Certainly in the, in the lawless church, the Serenthus, those, uh, those ideas are alive. Well, Jesus paid it all, and now I can go do whatever. There's no moral constraint anymore, right? Well, Basildes, man could live a sinless life, kind of the other way. After baptism, uh, God forgave uh, involuntary sins, okay? 
involuntary sins. But sinners had to pay for voluntary sins. So that's why John directly uh, addresses those issues as well in his writings. This completely, church, this complete, does this, do you not see how this would completely undermine the blessed assurance of justification and salvation that we have? How, how do you live your life hoping that you're doing good enough? Yeah, I believe in Jesus, but you know, I'm not very good. I'm not a very good Christian. I hope I do good enough. If that's where you're at and that's where you're coming from, you just, you don't understand the gospel. I hate, I hate to say that, but maybe this is exactly what you need to hear. If you're living your life thinking, well, yeah, no, I believe Jesus, you know, and all that, but I just hope I'm doing good enough to make it when I die. No, that's not the gospel. The gospel is you can know today, this moment, and have an assurance that your salvation and justification is secure by putting your faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ as the Messiah who came into the world to reach a hand into darkness and pull you into the light. You can know the moment your mind shifts and knows that and believes that. And it's for anybody. It's not a secret, special, hidden knowledge uh, that only you can have. If anybody ever comes to you and starts, starts trying to tell you that, you know what, everybody else has got it all wrong, and, uh, but hey, come with me and I'll show you the truth. Hmm? There will always be a spirit of arrogance attached to that as well, by the way, if I haven't mentioned that already. 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, directly, directly addresses the issue of the robbing of that blessed insurance. When John says, he says this in chapter 5, verse 13, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know. You can know, church. So all of these false teachings and ideas were coming being bled into the church and causing confusion and, and, and undermining, undermining the assurance of the believer. And John says you, that you can know that you have eternal life. Church, you can know it. Mm. Now, you tell me if these teachings that go all the way back to the first church are still prevalent today. My goodness, the ancient church fathers made it clear that a person could not believe in Gnostic ideas, Gnosticism, and still be a true Christian. Uh, I'll prove it to you right here. Ken uh, uh, cataloged a few of us, uh, a few of them for us. Page 25. Here's one: uh, Irenaeus against heresies. The apostles did not pass down any hidden wisdom, just the scriptures. Just in case you're wondering, Irenaeus, right? Uh, disciple of the Apostles. Uh, uh, here's Clement of Alexandria. There never was any secret doctrine handed down by the Apostles. Just the scriptures, only the heretics, only the heretics uh, say there is a secret doctrine from the Apostles which you must know to correctly understand scripture. Uh, here's another one, Tertullian. The Apostles did not keep any secret doctrine but taught it all openly. Only heretics teach secret, a secret gospel or letter or 
teaching. And then finally, we have this. Can I see this graphic? I put it up here for you guys. Uh, Lactanius, he said this. When they are called Phygians, which is a sect of Gnostic, Christian, blending, esoteric, whatever. When they're called Phygians or Novatians, as all of these are, or Valentinians, or Marcionites, or Anthropians, or Arians, they have ceased to be Christians. Church, this is so important and so imperative that we understand this. There is only one Jesus. There is only one gospel that leads to salvation, death, burial, resurrection. I believe in that. It was for me. There's only one name under which, by which man can be saved, and one gospel, and there's one spirit that leads us into all truth. Come on. And if you start getting off and you start adding to the gospel, it becomes a different gospel. We begin adding different attributes to Jesus. It becomes a different Jesus. Are you putting your hope in the finished work of the cross, or are you putting your hope in the finished work of the cross and your good behavior? Because those are two different gospels, and one taught by Jesus, one taught by another created Jesus by false teachers. It's one Jesus that we trust in and believe, the God, the one God. Now, nobody's, listen to me here, nobody's suggesting that the average churchgoer is Gnostic here, all right? Nobody's suggesting that the average churchgoer is a Gnostic these days. But aren't these teachings prevalent in the church today? Aren't they? Doesn't that matter? Shouldn't it matter? These are the roots of modern legalism. These are the roots of lawlessness in the church today as well. These are demonic gospels. Many times making Jesus to be an altogether different Jesus. The struggles we face, the struggles we face for, for truth in the face of freedom-robbing lies are nothing new. They've got their origins with the father of lies all the way back to Babylon, all the way back to Alexandria, Egypt, and yes, all the way back to the garden when that serpent first opened his mouth and said, oh, you don't know? You won't surely die. I gotta tell you something. Mm -mm. Church, I'd like to close tonight with some things that John wanted the church to know against a backdrop of Gnostic assault on the church, a drop back of, a drop, drop, drop back of Gnostic assault on the personhood of who Jesus was, a Gnostic assault on the gospel itself. John wrote this in 1 John chapter 1, verse 1. These are all for you. Let's just go through them, hit them one after another. What was from the beginning? What we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, 
See here he's claiming first-hand eyewitness. What we have looked at and even touched with our hands concerning the word of life. He's setting it up here. This, this is, look guys, this is not hearsay, alright? You're getting some bad teaching from some bad people. Bad teaching, or maybe bad, bad teaching from ignorant people in some cases, right? I'm telling you the truth, I've got a first-hand experience here. We touched him, John's saying. 1 John chapter 1, verse 8-10, through 10, let's keep reading. He said, if we say that we have no sin, like we can attain perfection in this life, then why did Jesus need to die, right? If you can live a sinless life and go on without sinning, and that, that you know, my past sins are covered, but now my intentional sins are not covered, and all of that bad stuff that we hear even in the churches today, if we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Verse 9, if we confess our sins... He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Verse 10, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Those are some strong words, church. But guess what? He is faithful to cleanse us, church. Come on now and confess that we are the state of what, what we are. We are... We are in this body of death. Even Paul said, now what I don't want to do, I do. What I do want to do, I don't do. Who will save me from this wretched body of death? Thanks be to Jesus Christ. Thanks be to him that he has delivered me unto salvation. So we confess that's the state of things. And it's not, now don't get it twisted. Now other false teachers will say, unconfessed sin is unforgiven sin. It's, you're getting back to Gnostic ideas and origins there. And there's a big time preacher on TV who says that. And it, guess what? It's not in the Bible. All right? We confess the state of things. We confess our sin. And he is faithful, to, to, faithful and righteous to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from what? All unrighteousness, past, present, future. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar. We understand the context of what that's from. All right? 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. Remember the backdrop of the false teaching. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And get, but guess what? Oh, wait, I thought you could go on and not sin again. <laughs> or if you sin after being forgiven, if you sin and you mess up, then you're lost, right? That's what they want to teach. But John says, my children, I'm writing these things so that you may not sin. Good. To miss the mark, right? But if anyone does sin, if anyone sins, we do have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteousness. Mm -mm. 1 John chapter 2, verse 21 through 22 reads, I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. So he's writing to Christians here. Saved Christians who are being challenged by these bad Gnostic teachings are creeping into the back of their minds and are still in the Christian subconscious to this day. He's saying, I'm writing to you not because you don't know the truth, but because you do. And I'm preaching to you tonight, not because you don't know the truth, but because you do know the truth. And because you have the truth here, church. Mm. 
Who is the liar? Verse 22. Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Messiah? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. You want to spot a false teaching? Boy, they'll come at the divinity of, they'll come at the divinity of Jesus. If, you, if you're curious if a guy is a false teacher or not, you just wait around long enough. He'll show you who he is. If you wait around long enough, he'll show you who he is. And at some point, he'll come at the divinity of Christ. And we see it happening uh, left and right today. We sure do. This is the Antichrist. 1 John chapter 4, verse 2 through 4. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus is not from God, this is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that it is coming, and even back then, guys, and now it is already in the world. The spirit of Antichrist has been here for a while, since the garden. Mm. Verse 4, you are from God. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them. You can overcome these false teachers. You can overcome these bad teachings, this bad believing, bad thinking that you've got, church. The word of God will strike them down. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them. Why? Because greater, famous verse, we love to stand on this, but a lot of times we have no idea what the context is, right? He's talking, uh, uh, railing against false teaching that will confuse and cloud and, and, and present a false gospel to you in, in the back of your minds and in your hearts. He's saying, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. You will overcome these false teachings and false believing. I love it. First John chapter 5, verse 3. We've got two more. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And this is my favorite, maybe one of my favorite verses in, in the word here. <laughs> the back half of this verse, and his commandments are not burdensome. Remember that. Man, what God expects from you, it's not burdensome. What does that mean? With these Gnostic ideas and want to teach that, man, you've got some heavy lifting to do. Well, you've been saved, but now you've got to, you know what? You've got, <laughs> you've got to get some, some stuff done. You need to earn that salvation now. Or you've got to not lose that salvation now. And people live their lives as Christians, I think, believing in Jesus for their salvation, but terrified that they're going to not be good enough and lose their salvation, or terrified that they're not going to do enough good to earn it. And that's a different gospel, guys. That's a different gospel because we know the truth. His commandments are not burdensome. What are his commandments? Not the law, not the Old Testament law. The whole law was summed up into two things. What? Love the Lord your God. Love your neighbor. That's the law, the, the kingdom law of Christ right there, is to love him and love your neighbor. If you do those two, the whole commandments are all summed up in that. That's not burdensome. Why? Why would that not be burdensome? Because it's, the, it's what you want to do. It's the desire of your heart. When you believe in him, the Holy Spirit seals your heart. Now that he gives you the desires of your heart, that means not that, oh, Lord, I want a boat, you know, and oh, I'll give you a boat then since you desire that. No, it's he, the desires, he has desires 
puts them in your heart, now you want what he wants you to want. That's what that means. So I want it anyway. The Holy Spirit sealed my heart. I want to do good. I want to love my neighbor. I want to all this. It's not, it's not burdensome to do something when you want to. I want to please God. Uh, we're of the same mind. It's not a burden. Got to get that. That's, that's the opposite of what religion teaches. Religion teaches control. Religion uh, uh, makes you jump through hoops to get to God when God is the one who's come to you. Do you hear that? Somebody say amen. 1 John 5, 20 through 21. Let's close here. And we know that God, that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. Get that? Underline that. Understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true. In his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. That's who he is. Verse 21, remember the context of the false Gnostic Jesuses that were being propagated. The false Gnostic Gospels of works or mysticism or enlightenment that were being put forward. He says, little children, guard yourselves from idols. Man, you've got to know this context. But isn't this in context far more fascinating than when you read it and you try to guess the context? I saw a big-time preacher just today use 1 John 5, 21 in completely out of context about idols. It drives me nuts. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. What are idols? They're, they're other gods. They're false gods. They're another Jesus, perhaps, even. Especially back then, an idol was what? A Molech. It was a fallen angel that set themselves up to be worshipped. Genesis chapter 6 stuff, right? The, 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 the uh, Greek gods that were half human, half man, and wanted to be worshipped, right? Gen like I said, Genesis 6 stuff. Look it up if you don't know what I'm talking about. They were fake, false gods, not gods that they worshipped and they'd carve little wooden statues about them. That's an idol. It was an idol. And you know what an idol is in your life? Anything that you worship as God that's not Yahweh or Jesus, Yeshua or Messiah. That's an idol. It's, it's a false god. <laughs> that's the whole context here of the Gnostic, Gnostic false teaching, false gospels, false Jesuses, all of that in that context. He says, guard yourself from these idols. And that's far more relevant today. That message of guarding yourself from idols is far more relevant when you understand this context because there are a lot of false gospels, teachings, uh, false paths to salvation being put out by not what are ultimately Gnostically inspired pastors today. Church, you can have a blessed assurance. You can have a blessed assurance and you don't need secret knowledge to attain it. It's right here for you in the Word of God. It's right here. My, my burden is easy. My yoke is light. Jesus said. Mm -mm -mm. So guard yourselves. And remember, remember, I've said it twice already tonight, remember that the spirit of arrogance often accompanies the false teacher. 
Because he has what you don't have and you can't have it without him, right? But guess what? John says otherwise. John says, but the Son of God has come and has given us understanding. He's given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. This is the true God and eternal life. Well, I hope you're... I hope you're enlightened tonight, right? I hope that you are blessed by tonight's teaching. And if anybody has any questions or if anybody wants notes, chat at chadrandall.com. Shoot me a message. I'll answer them as I can, and I can certainly send my notes out to you guys, all right? So uh, with that, let's close here. Uh, everyone in your living rooms, every eye closed, every head bowed. If you're here tonight and you have been victim of some bad teaching, some bad theology, and didn't even know it. Here all your life you've been thinking that, yeah, I believe in Jesus, but now you know what, i gotta, I got to keep it, i got to not lose it, or I, I need to do more work to earn it and deserve it. And you're not only tonight realizing that that is a false teaching, and that is a different Jesus, and that is a different gospel. If you're only realizing that tonight, I want you to just lift your heart up to the Lord and say, Hallelujah! Hallelujah! Amen? Because you are free from that tonight. You are liberated from that tonight. Jesus has come into the world that, that you might have life and life abundantly as a gift of love to you. That you just accept him for who he is. Acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. That he died on the cross for your sin. He was in the grave and he rose again. Why? Why did he raise rise again he rose again to demonstrate his authority over death and you in him have the same authority and you can be sure of it you can be sure of it either the cross and the empty grave were enough or they weren't if you didn't do anything to earn or deserve your salvation how can you do anything to lose it just believe when you just believe that's it and that's not a work that's not a work. That's a knowledge. That's an understanding. And which is what repentance means after all. Oh, there's so many different ways this could go. If you're watching this tonight and you've realized that you've been living lawlessly and that the Lord is calling you into a closer walk with him, whatever it is, church, if the Lord is uh, convicting your heart through the Holy Spirit tonight, I pray you surrender it to him. I pray you surrender it to him. I pray, that, I pray that you are called to alertness to spy out false teachings as they come because they're coming fast and they're coming often nowadays. Uh, the enemy is prowling. He is doing all he can right now to bring confusion and to cloud your judgment, to cloud your understanding. Uh, he's bringing an authority crisis to make you question the Word of God, the authority of the Word of God, the inerrancy of the Word of God, whatever it is. Lift your heart up to him right now and say, just say this with me. Say, Jesus, thank you. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your freedom. Thank you, Father, for what you've done for me, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that you've given me your word, Father, to instruct me, to help me look out for the wolves among the sheep, God. That you give me the Holy Spirit to, to, to uh, uh, give me a heads up when deceit is upon me, Lord Jesus. Thank you for giving me discernment when deceit is upon me, Lord Jesus. Lord Jesus, give me wisdom. Say this with me. Give me wisdom in this hour of history, God. Give me the opportunity, Father, to share what you've revealed to me, Lord. 
Uh, give me the opportunity, Lord, to liberate other brothers and sisters uh, who have been robbed by this Gnostic false teaching, Father, that is prevalent in the church today, Lord. Uh, if you've never given your heart to Jesus Christ, just say this with me. Say, I believe you. Jesus, I believe that you died on the cross for my sin for me. I believe that on the third day you rose again from the tomb, and because you live, I live. Lord, come into my heart and make me new. Grow me closer to you. Make me more like you. Teach me, Lord. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. May the Lord bless you. May He keep you. May He make His face to shine upon you. May He pour His favor out on your lives. May you go in grace and may you prosper in all you do. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. We love you guys. We will see you Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. at the Rowwood Retreat here in Nashville, Tennessee, the Bellevue community, or right here online. Have a blessed week. We love you.